This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 58, The Bhishma Parva. Last time, we finished up Book 5, The Book of the Effort. Since I do not have the entire collection in print, it's hard to know exactly how far we are into the book, but I think we must be getting close to the halfway point. In terms of raw text, we're probably only a third of the way through, but a large chunk of what remains will be Bhishma's final teaching on the laws of Dharma, something like the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy combined. And I promise you will only skim through that. Our current book, The Book of Bhishma, is the first of the so-called battle books, each of which is named after the general of the Karava army during each stage of the battle. For now, Bhishma is the commander, and just before the fighting begins, we get the Bhagavad Gita. The book begins right where we left off, at the pre-dawn hours of the day of the battle. Briefly, the framing of the story shifts back to our narrator, Vaisampaina. Soon, Sanjay will resume his role as storyteller, but for now we're back to the conversation between the bard Vaisampaina and his king, Janamajaya. Vaisampaina said, Listen, my lord, how those heroes, the Kurus, the Pandavas, the Somakas, fought on the sacred plain of Kurukshetra. Accomplished in their study of the Vedas, they all took great delight in anticipation of the battle to come. The Pandava army occupied the western half of the plain, facing their enemies to the east. The rest of the world seemed denuded of its male populace, because everyone who was anyone was present that day for the battle. When they saw, on the opposing side, cousin Duryodhana take his place at the head of the army, the Pandavas were filled with joy. At last, after so much interminable waiting, they would finally have their chance to settle the matter. They started blowing their conches, and soon all the warriors on both sides were tooting their horns and cheering. The first rays of morning sunlight began to light up the field while the two armies formed their battle lines. The vast torrents of humanity racing toward each other and the clouds of dust they kicked up gave the impression of two world-ending tsunamis about to collide in the midst of the field. Then both sides came to a halt, leaving a gap between them while heralds from each side hashed out the rules of engagement. The terms they reached were the following. First, they should keep it a fair fight, and if one's opponent withdraws, he should be allowed to leave unmolested. Interestingly, routed warriors also should not be slain. It was agreed that chariots should fight chariots, cavalry fight cavalry, elephant fight elephant, and so on. No one should be attacked when they are unprepared or panic-struck. The same went for people who have been disarmed or incapacitated or are trying to surrender. Drivers, supply trains, and musicians should not be attacked. Meanwhile, back at the palace of Hastinapur, we finally, albeit belatedly, get an explanation for Sanjay's uncanny omniscience. While Dhritarashtra was up to his usual hand-wringing and worrying, his natural father, Vyasa, appeared. Vyasa said, O king, the time has arrived for your sons and the kings of the earth to engage in the final conflict. But you know the nature of time, so don't be sad. Now, if you'd like to watch the action, I'll be happy to grant you a vision of the battle. Dhritarashtra said, Thanks, but no thanks. I couldn't bear to watch a slaughter of my kinsmen. I would much rather listen to the story than see it with my own eyes. Good old Dhritarashtra would have loved podcasting. Perhaps he's reincarnated right now and listening to this very episode. Vyasa was happy to comply, and he instead granted clairvoyance and omniscience to the king's trusted driver and advisor, Sanjay. Vyasa said, Sanjay will narrate the battle to you. He will have knowledge of everything on both sides, both events and feelings, at day and at night. 
But don't be sad. This is all just the workings of fate, and I will ensure that the fame of your sons and nephews will never be forgotten. So don't be sad. Everything is working out just as fate would have it. As for victory, that shall go where righteousness is. As if to underscore the inevitability of the conflict, Vyasa pointed to the numerous bad omens among the animal kingdom, and he referred to the present constellations and the course of the planets to show that everything had been written in the stars. I believe people have used his astronomical observations to date the battle. At this point, a surprisingly tiresome exchange takes place between Vyasa and the king. Dhritarashtra wanted to know what omens a victorious army might look for to predict their victory. Following this, Vyasa left. Either the king's curiosity was not yet sated, or he wanted to test out Sanjay's gift some more, because he asked his friend to describe all the lands from which the warriors had originated. As if the biggest war in history were not about to begin, Sanjay took his time delineating the kinds of animals, the names of rivers, the four elements that made up the physical universe, and the earth's situation in the wider universe. The king, still not satisfied, requested a geography lesson. Tapping into his omniscience, Sanjay described all the lands of the earth, going from north to south. Finally, he zeroed in on the lands of India and patiently listed the origins of its principal dynasties, the overall geography, and tirelessly listed page after page the various tribes, kingdoms, and peoples who inhabited the subcontinent. This encyclopedic description of the earth and its inhabitants goes on for pages. It seems like even Sanjay's mind began to wander, because his omniscient mind's eye alighted on a stunning future event. He suddenly exclaimed, My lord, Bhishma, the son of Shantanu, the elder of the race of the Bharatas, has been slain. I see that foremost of all warriors lying dead on a bed of arrows, slain by Sikandin. Now that prediction succeeded in snapping the king out of his reverie. With tears welling up in his vacant eyes, Dhritarashtra asked, how could Bhishma have been slain by that nobody Sikandin? How did my sons allow this to happen? Where was Drona and Kripa that they did not defend him? This news definitely did the trick and concentrated the king's mind on the events at hand. Now Dhritarashtra wanted to know everything. How the battle started, how it happened that the invincible Bhishma had been killed, and what became of his sons following that dreadful incident. Not missing a chance to berate his patron, Sanjay first pointed out that Bhishma's death was ultimately the result of the king's forbearance during the dice game. But then he obliged his master by telling him everything that had taken place during the great conflict at Kurukshetra. Sanjay began his narrative on the night before the battle. Duryodhana, knowing that he had the upper hand in this fight, declared that their main objective should be to protect Bhishma. So long as Bhishma lived, they could never be defeated. The prince particularly assigned some of his best warriors to seek out and kill Sikandin at the first opportunity. Dushasan was chosen to lead this critical mission. The following morning, ten of the Karva armies were arrayed in a line, each led by its respective general, while the eleventh army, composed of the Karva's own men, took up the vanguard, with Bhishma at the foremost position. In the pre-dawn hours, all seven planets were seen in a straight conjunction, each blazing like a fire in the sky. When the sun appeared, it seemed to be divided in half. When the sun appeared, it seemed to be divided in half. Bhishma instructed his soldiers that this constellation meant that the doors to heaven were now wide open, and that they should follow the dictates of their primeval dharma and embrace death joyously. 
Every warrior in India, with the exception of Karna and his followers, stood arrayed on the battlefield. In response to the Kaurava army's disposition, Yudhishthira referred to the teachings of Brihaspati and recommended that their lesser force take up the Vajra, or thunderbolt-shaped array, with Bhimasena at the head, followed by Arjun and Krishna, who protect Sikandin until the right moment. When the vast Pandava army was in position, Yudhishthira could finally see how his army compared with the Kauravas, and it didn't look good. Large as it was, his army looked paltry in comparison to their opponents. Addressing Arjun, he said, Well, we've set up our army according to the ancient scriptures, but that's a damned big army over there. How exactly do you expect that we shall win this fight? I guess Arjun wasn't yet feeling any doubts, because he reassured his brother, saying, There's only one way a smaller army can vanquish a greater one, and that is something all the wise men know. Victory always goes where there is righteousness. And where there is Krishna, there is righteousness. With the Lord of the Universe on our side, I frankly do not see how it would be possible for us to lose. As best as I can tell, the Pandava army was arrayed as follows. Bhimasena stood at the very front of the army, with Nakul and Sahadev on either side. The commander of the allied forces, Dristad Yumna, held the center of the vanguard, while Draupadi's five sons and Arjun's son, Abhimanyu, held the rear. Following the vanguard, at the head of the main force, was Arjun and his unarmed driver, Krishna. Sikandim was nearby, to be protected until the moment of Bhishma's death was at hand. At the very center of the army stood Yudhishthira, mounted in his chariot and surrounded by war elephants. Behind him was Virata and his army, and behind that was King Drupad's force. The Pandavas held the western half of the field facing eastward, with the wind blowing at their back into the faces of their enemies. On the Karva side, the odors of the Pandava war elephants made the horses and elephants exceedingly skittish, while the carrion birds had an uncanny interest in just their side of the field. Duryodhana held the very center of his army, and was mounted on a gigantic war elephant. His uncle Shakuni held his rear. Bhishma, dressed all in white, stood at the very front of the army, along with the numerous sons of Dhritarashtra. The Karva side had 100,000 elephants and 100 chariots for every elephant. There were 100 horsemen for each chariot, 10 archers per horseman, and 100 infantry per archer. You do the math. As the sun peeked over the horizon, Krishna advised Arjun to offer a prayer to Durga, the most badass goddess of destruction in all three worlds. Arjun stepped down from his chariot and prayed, praising the goddess and asking for victory in this war. Soon the goddess appeared before them on the battlefield. I guess she too was anxious to get on with the war because she kept it brief. She said, Son of Pandu, you shall vanquish your enemies in a short time. You are Nara, and you have Narayan at your side. You cannot be defeated. Not even Indra could do that. Then she vanished. Thus reassured, Arjun happily leaped onto his chariot, and he and Krishna gave a triumphant blast on their horns. I'm going to end the narration here for now, because the very next chapter begins the Bhagavad Gita, which deserves its own series of episodes. I must say that the opening of the Bhishma Parva is as convoluted and difficult to follow as the very beginning of the epic was. I suspect very strongly that at these important launching points in the epic, later editors were unable to resist adding in more details and new chapters. The attempt at making an encyclopedia out of the epic has never been more apparent than when Dhritarashtra, on the morning of the war, asks Sanjay for a world geography lesson. 
It seems like the formation of the armies was revised many times, because we find ourselves jumping back to the night before the war in the pre-dawn hours over and over again, each time with some new conversation or event. Even when we are told of the Pandavas' formation, Dristrad Yumna is placed both in the vanguard of the army as well as guarding Yudhishthira's rear at the same time. Before we get on to the Gita, there's one last insight from our former translator that I'd like to point out. Van Buitenen apparently went through the trouble of mapping out the kingdoms of each named army participating in the war, and he found an interesting pattern. It looks like the Pandava army was mostly composed of kings from the south and east of Hastinapur, while the Kaurava's allies were predominantly from the north and west. Of course, the traditional flow of India's migrating and invading peoples have always run from the northwest to the southeast. Thus, the Great War might be seen as a nativist defense against aggressive invaders. Not to give away the ending, but in this war, the nativists emerge the winners. That's all for now. I'm really excited that next time we'll start in on the Bhagavad Gita itself. Thanks for listening.